Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Well, hello, good morning, or good day, as may be the case with you. Uh, welcome to today's issue of Civil Discourse, hosted by Todd Furness. I'm excited about our prospects today for the conversation with Abhishek Singh. Abhishek is uh, a well-known researcher throughout the industry. He's got a fantastic resume and uh, impeccable academic credentials. He's with a group called the Everest Research Institute. And in full disclosure, I uh, worked with Everest uh, quite a long time ago, from 2001 to 2008. They've come a long way since I left, but uh, it's great to have you today, Abhishek. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure to join you in this conversation. So uh, one of the things we wanted, I wanted to talk to you about, lots of stuff is going on in, in healthcare. Um, COVID has really brought to light a number of industry-wide challenges ranging from, you know, clinical stuff to back office stuff. And uh, I'd like to kind of get a sense from you right now as to what you see the major trends as being uh, from your perspective. Sure. I'd like to put the trends into context by comparing what was happening pre-COVID crisis to what is happening now, because in many ways, some of what has happened during the crisis is kind of emphasizing certain trends, whereas there are certain trends which uh, do not continue to be as important. Because if we go back a few years, uh, specifically around the time when uh, Affordable Care Act uh, came into implementation, uh, EHR, EMR implementation was the big thing happening within the industry. We started seeing a big shift in the industry towards what is now commonly known as the digital front door wherein most hospital systems, healthcare organizations, were at least paying lip service to uh, uh, what they call their engagement with patients, at least in terms of what interfaces they were creating, how they were thinking of patient engagement, experience, wellness, and all these terms that we keep hearing about. Now, there were a couple of things that happened pre-COVID, which in terms of what happened during COVID ended up creating an impact. One was uh, during the 2015 to 19 timeframe, there were a lot of so-called digital or technology specific investments that were made into this digital front door, uh, whether it was through creation of patient engagement apps, um, one could open their phone and uh, figure out an uh, access point to access a hospital system or look at their patient records. All of that was happening. What turned out was that while significant amount, I wouldn't say significant, but still a good amount of investment was going into this digital front door specific investment. Organizations uh, did not get these required results from it. We actually did a survey in uh, late 2019 with around 75 healthcare organizations. What turned out was that 75% of these healthcare organizations ended up saying that the digital investments that they had embarked upon in the 2015 to 18 timeframe did not end up giving them the desired results. Primary reasons cited were, hey, uh, while we were investing a lot on the front door interface side, since the back office, the mid office, the clinicians, 
the nursing staff were not bought into or uh, in creating the requirements and designing it just by putting up a technology interface was not going to solve for anything and we were seeing a lot of redundancy in terms of what was bought or implemented as technology versus what was actually being used and in fact you and i have had that discussion about how uh, workforce uh, pressures were created clinicians ended up spending more time just filling forms uh, all of those issues were getting created come 2020 and covid hits the market there are a few other things that amplified themselves uh, we saw a huge crisis in terms of staffing nursing staff availability clinicians work hours shooting through the roof uh, all of those components around where to procure medicines vaccines how to look at inventory management where to staff people etc came to the fore and what people started realizing was that technology indeed had a role to play in this because just by way of collection of data providing them situational analysis of where to bring in nursing staff from if you are you know, having cross state uh, issues in terms of gaps in terms of what is available and what is the demand could you actually bring in nursing staff from other states are there going to be cross state regulations or uh, compliance issues with that all of that was happening and hence most organizations started realizing that hey even for from a perspective of business resilience something like analytics usage of data systems understanding what the dark data i mean by dark data what we mean in the tech industry is that data that you have but you don't know exists to be meaningfully used came to the fore and organizations started to look at it and then the role of technology companies whether it's microsoft oracle and others even the emrs the large emrs started to work with these organizations in helping put to some use maybe these are short term uses but getting them to use that pieces of information whether it's around patient data inventory talent uh, contingent staffing and all of these things started playing out right now what i'm seeing if you ask me this question about what are the major trends i think uh, usage of technology towards fixing the operational side of things is becoming an important question most organizations have started to ask for me working as a tech researcher within the health industry one of the things that i used to feel a bit underwhelmed by was the fact that technology used to come as an afterthought even though in terms of adoption of medical technology healthcare has been kind of uh, very savvy but when when it comes to operational technologies they have not uh, been thoughtful about it so to speak so that's my two cents in terms of what changes i have been seeing on the ground so there, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, first of all, the digital front door is an interesting idea that uh, has been around for a while now. And, and I think it's, uh, it's important to capture that, that this idea that we, you know, as we've discussed, we spend more time in the healthcare industry looking at tablets and PCs than we do look, looking at patients uh, in the eye. And that's, that's become an increased problem that's led to burnout and some other things. Um, but you also mentioned something which is a really interesting concept, which is thinking about resource planning at the talent level on given the elasticity or lack thereof of workforce supply. In other words, how do I bring nurses and physicians in from other areas to, uh, to complement my existing capabilities in order to meet demand based on, you know, in today's world, it's the pandemic, uh, but it could be something else. 
And that raises an interesting question over how do you do that kind of planning? What kind of ERP tools would you need and how do they need to be integrated? We have a tough time right now just getting integration of patient records and having cross-platform uh, interoperability with you know, EHRs and, and EMRs. And just for definitional purposes, I call uh, the EMR the digital transaction of a particular experience, like a lab test or a, um, uh, an image. Uh, and, and an EHR, it, I define as the sum of all EMRs, uh, just so that we can have a, a playing field that we, make, that, uh, that we can use. So I think this interoperability issue becomes an increasingly important one. And until we can solve that, I think a lot of the workflow issues that you're raising uh, as concerns are going to be difficult to resolve. Would you agree? Indeed. Indeed, because what has ended up happening in the last few years, and it's a problem which is not unique to healthcare, but when organizations adopt technology, they end up sometimes putting all of their eggs into one kind of an architecture or with one product. And we have seen this oligopoly when it comes to uh, the EHR, EMR industry playing out with the likes of Epic, Cerner, all scripts, kind of being the primarily holding almost like 60 to 70% of the market. And it is along, these, along the lines of these players that most organizations have defined their tech strategy. And hence, now that we are talking about interoperability, what organizations are realizing is that not only in terms of interoperability between these tech platforms, but also say, for example, what regulators want to do as data interchange, what the likes of new age technology companies, like what Microsoft wants to do in this space, what Oracle wants to do in this space, can these systems speak to each other is a huge problem because one is the question of privacy, which holds back organizations from sharing information. But the major issue goes beyond that in terms of how technology systems can speak to each other or not. And that's where we are tr still trying to solve for it. So the privacy issue is one that's interesting, although I think it's overplayed to some extent. Um, it's a reason for not doing things, but not necessarily a reason for doing things. And I think we need to get, get a, a, have a way of thinking about that with a new paradigm. But your point is well taken around this interoperability issue. And I think it's going to be, it's going to grow more complex rather than less. And here's why I say that. Um, in December, it was announced that Oracle was buying Cerner. Now, the transaction hasn't closed, but usually when you make an announcement, it's going to close. And it's just a question of time, getting through the regulators and the like. And you also mentioned the idea that we have a, an oligopoly with Cerner and Epic, McCasson, Allscripts. Uh, really forming the nucleus of the of the industry. One could argue that perhaps Athena is in there as well. But I, I think what's interesting to me is with Oracle's acquisition, you have now an interesting extension of the healthcare responsibilities, particularly when it gets to some of the uh, larger safety net hospitals that are uh, owned and run by counties. So for example, uh, you know, we have a large county hospital and the county is also trying to migrate or, or trying to implement Oracle. If the hospital is on Cerner, now Oracle, then what, you know, how does that ever get unpacked? It's almost like it's a lock on future revenues into perpetuity because nobody's ever going to change out of that model. Like, you know, or at least it would be a long, long time. Uh, do you see an entrenchment there that's problematic? A couple of ways to look at it, uh, Todd. One is 
when we are when you're talking about some of the county based hospitals um, what i was uh, immediately reminded of was when it comes to even the technology implementation uh, there's there still continues to be a huge rural urban divide you can call it or even from a segmentation perspective large hospital systems versus single hospital systems and hospitals which are like in counties etc now if you see the large hospital systems and epic has had great amount of success with them because obviously of the nature of the architecture of the solution that epic has it has succeeded more with the large hospital systems whereas the likes of cerner athena you mentioned etc have succeeded more with ambulatory organization acute care organizations etc so on so on and so forth now when it comes to the role of somebody like oracle and how, how it can either break into the entrenchment of these players or create something which is uh, more encompassable across these segments that we are talking about one important aspect is the role that we are seeing in the technology world outside i mean beyond just healthcare is this concept of cloud which is hey where data is stored how it is consumed and at what cost it get consumed because at the end of the day any decision about modernization of technology lends itself to two things either i'm going to look at my existing investment set and modernize it or i'm going to rip and replace it bring in something entirely new and for most organizations dealing with oracle in the future that question will arise if they are epic shops this is how healthcare organizations term themselves like we are epic shops we are certain shops we are outscript shop how will they be making that decision and it's both a question of investing in a future model so it's not a question of adopting oracle it's about investing in a future model which lends you to think of hey do i retire what i have or i build on top of it now the question will be will oracle given its decades decades old legacy of dealing with innovative technology and they have delved, dabbled into multiple industries healthcare now being one of the areas that they are uh, diving into deeper can they because of the expertise that they are bringing in nudge organizations to think towards a different path towards modernization that's an open question for which i i think the jury is still out on but i would definitely say that with the coming in of players like oracle into something as deep as emrs and ehrs i think the discussion will become uh, more open around hey how can we make those transitions how we can debate about interoperability more openly and not hide behind the visage of privacy etc to do what we can do but we are not doing so that the the idea of moving to a new model is essentially a paradigm shift it's not saying i'm going to make an incremental step from point a to point b but rather instead a paradigm shift that says i'm going to embrace a new future reality starting you know today or starting with the design that we're going to embark upon um which kind of you know on the one hand we're thinking about things like um what we colloquially refer to as ai right artificial intelligence but i think that there's something else which is even perhaps uh more innovative and it may solve a lot of the privacy issues which is blockchain mm -hmm. are you seeing people move into this space aggressively or are the big providers doing that honestly not a lot uh we have had the phase wherein uh, there was it it was a shiny new toy which organizations wanted to deal with 
but oracle will tell you for a fact that uh, most organizations when they are looking at use cases wherein a, uh, an architecture like blockchain could be applied they are easily seeing database management systems of your still playing a i would say 70 to 80% of what can be achieved through blockchain at a much lower cost so we are currently going through within healthcare uh, i would say a phase of disillusionment with some of these technologies like blockchain or even artificial intelligence because while they were sold to these organizations as hey these will accelerate your path towards the future in reality what they saw in implementation was not really there it, there was nothing under the hood and very good example of that is ibm watson health what ended up happening with md anderson a few years back totally ended up disillusioning the healthcare market about what ai was going to do there what a what a giant disaster that was yeah. what an and and i actually think you know you can you can tell a lot about the solution based on the point of origin of the company and so i look at ibm as still a big hardware company that does some software and so they like to throw compute capacity at the problem to solve the problem. So they build a big database, call it Watson, and then they put a bunch of um, compute behind it to allow you to sort through the database very quickly. But it's not, I wouldn't call it AI per se. I would call it a database. Yeah. So it gets to the, uh, the next question becomes, what can we do with AI? Excuse me. Excuse me. So what can we do with AI to, to really advance? I see AI as being particularly helpful, potentially in the diagnostic realm, in the clinical realm. Um, I see blockchain more in privacy and payments. Yeah. Um, is that what you're kind of seeing? Yes. So when it comes to payments, that's where, given what we have seen with cryptocurrencies, there are more mature use cases of the application of blockchain. Now, the entire concept of blockchain is built around a community-based validation system wherein you do not need a centralized regulator to manage all of it, which ends up putting too much responsibility on one stakeholder, wherein the responsibility gets shared amongst many stakeholders when it comes to blockchain. Now, it's an interesting concept, and especially when it comes to something like EHR and patients having some sort of ownership and how they can drive it to move around with their health records, Blockchain can have immense potential, but the reality of, or fact of the matter is right now where we are sitting, conceptually, we can easily see where blockchain can take EHR, but in terms of the maturity of the solutions, in terms of the buy-in that we see from organizations, it's still not there. Yeah. If I take the argument to artificial intelligence, however, there are many more workable use cases out there. I mean, the market, I mean, we are talking about simple use cases of documentation automation, how clinicians can start accessing data, but they need not read through hundreds of pages to identify trends, but an, uh, a bot can read through that and give them a statistical analysis around what are the trends that are visible in some of the data points that they read through. We are already seeing that. And whether it is in clinical decision-making, whether we are talking about uh, a lot of uh, uh, genome-based therapies that are getting applied, like the likes of Novartis uh, or GSK, how they are working with provider organizations in running some of these uh, genome-based therapies. The role of data and AI is immense because you are track, trying to try, track symptoms, try to make sense of it. 
a person just looking at paper based records uh, is not able to do that a doctor is not able to do that but that's where ai becomes an aid to clinicians not necessarily replace clinicians as people end up debating about it and as the knowledge base grows uh, exponentially year over year as it as it is doing it becomes more and more difficult to get to keep your arms around it and keep current so physicians have an increasingly difficult job staying current on things although while they may have uh, a good basic understanding of everything that they're dealing with um it's just it's just hard it's just you know so much to get across so I think the idea of AI really assisting the physician make good decisions is is the opportunity there. Would you agree? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And when we look at AI, I mean, our research, we think of it as a spectrum of many things that are happening with data. And the first step is the basic automation of certain manual processes that should have been automated long back. Uh, whether it is in terms of, hey, how invoices are processed, how billing happens, uh, how ensuring that one patient does not end up receiving 10 different bills from the same organization, uh, healthcare organization that one deals with. I mean, these are some of the things that should be intuitive for organizations to deal with when they are already looking at the data and there are enough solutions available. It's a question both of uh, whether there is conviction within organizations to go ahead and implement some of these solutions. And second thing, uh, what is the incentive for that? And somehow I end up noticing that incentives that as they align with patients almost go on the back burner, whereas the financial side in incentives are followed through more quickly. Of course, they, everybody to wants to follow the money, right? Yeah. Well, and it raises an interesting question because um, one of the things that we still struggle with as an industry is about one out of every five claims is rejected. And so one could cynically assert that the insurance companies are really interested in the, in the float uh, rather than paying the bills timely and quickly. And so as a result of that, we have you know, 90, 120, 180 day uh, payment terms that don't help the, the physicians or the clinical practices at all. They've got to suffer through that cash flow problem and the insurance companies are just completely indifferent to it. And so it's really a struggle, which is why we see cash prices. Um, I doubt you saw this study that came out that basically said about 50% of all cash prices are lower than the lowest negotiated contract right for an in-network contact contract price for an in-network provider. So that's crazy, right? Yeah. You've got these people who are theoretically professionals negotiating with the providers to get the best price possible in order to be in their network on the under the auspices that, that the insurance company is going to drive traffic to that provider. And not only does the insurance company not drive traffic, but the price isn't the best that it could be. And so as a result of that, you know, cash is always king uh, because the provider wants to get the cash now and not have the cash flow delays that that occur when you wait for a claim to be processed. So You'd think, again, that would be another opportunity for something like blockchain to step in. But again, the problem is the stakeholders don't really have an interest in, in having that occur. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, I'm, I'm not an expert on the kind of incentives that end up driving there, but one can easily see, and you use the term, follow the money is what uh, plagues a lot of these things. So even when I look at, say, for example, technology systems that get implemented on the revenue cycle management side of providers, uh, how they are managing receivables, how they are doing follow-ups, et cetera. Uh, even there, 
there are technologies available that can help you spot these things. There are enough markers available that can tell you that once you, when you are submitting a claim, what are the typical tendencies or markers which will ensure you that you know upfront, even submit before submitting a claim that it might get rejected. Organizations can actually start making or tweaking things to, alongside those. But at the at even prior to that, how payer provider contracting happens on the different sets of services or even payments of Rx or medicine, et cetera, how those, that contracting happens is something that is a big, huge black box for us. And that's why whole price transparency thing and how that can, uh, something like blockchain can get applied to it so that if I, as a patient, want to see a single version of truth around pricing of a service, I do not need to call seven different hospitals to make a decision. Blockchain as a technology can help me do that simply by a click of a button. Yeah, it should be able to, but the problem is you're not getting the systems posting uh, their pricing information as required by law. And so we have guys out there like Leo Wisniewski, who's doing a lot of work in that space, and Bill Hennessy of Pratter, who's doing a lot of work in that space to get pricing and make it available. And then be able to let uh, consumers know where to go to get the best price for routine care and for, uh, for more extraordinary care. But again, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, the, the uh, Pricing Transparency Act said you've got to post your pricing on the web in machine-readable format. Well, they're not just, it's just not, nobody's complying with that. Or I should say a substantial portion of the market's not complying with that. And so we have a problem in that the, the pricing is just not transparent. And it's amazing. I, I actually just did this myself uh, just because I was curious. I, I have bad knees from uh, many years of tennis. And uh, so I thought, you know, I need a knee replacement. I wonder what it's going to cost. So I, I called Blue Cross Blue Shield, my carrier, and I said, hey, what does it cost if I go to this facility? And they said $16,000. I said, wow, okay. Well, the facility that I, they gave me the answer on was not the, the facility that I asked. I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm talking about this other facility. Oh, that facility is $38,000. It's one mile down the road. There's no explanation for why, why the price is more than 2x. And so then I said, well, what about, what's my deductible in each instance? And the difference was $10. So th- there's no incentive for me as the patient to bother trying to get the best, the, the lowest price service uh, because it doesn't affect me. My, the difference to me is $10. The difference to the insurance company is it was going to be, uh, gosh, $22,000. And so I said, well, okay, that's good to know. Now I haven't had the knee done, but, but it was just, it was just telling to see how the pricing disparities were so great in such a small geographic area. So it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. I think it's not, you know, systems aren't going to put their numbers out there until uh, the penalties for failing to do so are, are much greater than they are today. It's a rounding error for them. So they're not going to do it. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about Cerner and, and Oracle. What, you know, if you had top, sort of your top three or top five takeaways from that business combination, what would you say they would include? I, I posted, I was kind of frustrated because I thought Forrester did a terrible job with that saying uh, the top seven things are going to be cloud, 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 and cloud. And it's like, really, that's the best you can do. So what do you, what do you think is going to happen? To, what are the, you know, the big takeaways from that business combination? Many, many things actually. So at, at, at a basic level, since we are talking about technology adoption here, one thing we need to understand is that when health systems adopt technology or any organization adopt technology, it happens through a CIO organization, which takes care of the technology mandate for the firm. 
and it runs through the entire process of procurement that handles uh, the tech services uh, procurement for any organization. So that's this organization, even within health systems that will continue to do so. What Oracle brings in by virtue of this acquisition is that while there is a thriving market for technology adoption within healthcare, uh, within healthcare, especially health provider market, uh, it's the role of the traditional technology companies like Microsoft, Oracle, SAP, which have been the big, huge players in other industries who will bring in the kind of expertise in terms of technology modernization, core components, architecture within the context of healthcare, which they have, I would say, ignored simply by virtue of the fact that, hey, once they found the, the healthcare market to be very fragmented, selling to single hospital systems or even hospitals, uh, large holding companies who were like selling and buying hospitals, did not appear to them as a, a great market to invest in, which now they are starting to focus on. So that's point number one. I think the expertise of the big tech companies, Oracle being one, I'm also mentioning Microsoft and Amazon because they have also been keenly investing into that area. So in many ways, I am connecting all of the recent trends that have happened in terms of technology acquisitions by these players. So whether it's Microsoft acquiring Nuance last year, Oracle uh, and Cerner, and what investments Amazon has been playing, having a big, huge influence driver. So these are folks who have started to speak with the CIOs of healthcare organizations, nudge them towards thinking towards modern architectures, the topics that we were discussing, AI, blockchain. It's one thing to read about these tenets in a white paper or in a podcast, but have a practitioner who has 30 years of experience doing that and showcase it to you is a different ball game altogether. And they have, the healthcare organizations have been used to EMR and EHR companies coming to them and selling, okay, add this bolt-on product. This is a new feature and benefit to our existing ones. That's all that they have seen largely. But with the coming in for the, of these big players, a different kind of thought leadership based influence will start playing into the market, which I think will make the market make more mature decisions about procurement. So that's point number one. Second thing is, I mean, you mentioned how cloud, cloud, cloud was being talked about, but it definitely happens to be one of the major undercurrents of how technology consumption is going to happen in the future. What we have seen in healthcare so far is that most technology investments have been capital intensive, huge millions and billions of dollars going in. And that brings to bear how CIOs and CFOs continue to think of technology adoption today is that, hey, I made a billion dollar epic procurement 10 years back and you're asking me now to think of another technology implementation which will be of the same quantum. I'm not ready for that. that in itself did not give me the benefit. What cloud does is simply by virtue of the argument in favor of multi-tenancy, taking away the data center investment costs uh, and your ability to change CapEx to OpEx allows healthcare organizations, especially the CFOs to think about how they can play ball between their capital expenditure targets and operational expenditure targets and think of a more creative solution around that. So that's one aspect that will be key because a lot of new tech coming in, whether it's from Oracle, whether it's Amazon or a lot of startups that we see in the healthcare arena are being built 
with the concept of cloud or as a service. So you pay for what you get, not necessarily you're buying into an entire product suite and you're paying million dollar licensing fees. So that's, that's another aspect. And last but not the least, what Oracle Cerner uh, acquisition does is open up healthcare to an innovation ecosystem, a talent model, uh, which or engineering talent to which they did not have ha did not have as much exposure to in the past. We are talking about Silicon Valley folks now seriously thinking about what the implications are, how to build on top of what Oracle is trying to do here. Does it the questions that a lot of tech players used to have for healthcare is that hey, we might end up creating a solution for it, but how will we be able to make the sale to organizations who are not really thinking about these operational technology innovation? I think this nudge that is being created by Oracle and Cerner in terms of creating a platform on top of which a marketplace might get created of new products being written atop of an API-led philosophy using which even I, if I want to get a different view of how I look at my own electronic health records, I can use a low-code platform to slice and dice and create a view for my own. And that's the kind of innovation ecosystem which has been on the periphery of the healthcare system, which by virtue of what is happening might start entering within the confines of healthcare organizations and impact my interaction as a patient with healthcare organizations. So I think that you've you created a much better understanding of why cloud's relevant going from CapEx to OpEx. That makes a lot of sense and is much better than, than Forrester could ever do. But uh, this other idea around, um, the, the, the kind of, that you mentioned at the end there was, was also compelling. I think in, in essence, what you're implying is there may be a richer talent pool in, in Silicon Valley than there is in Kansas City, right? Because that's where Cerner is headquartered. Um, or in Austin versus Kansas City, not to disparage Kansas City, but just to set, kind of put a, a point on uh, how, how important talent is going to be in this, uh, in this coming world. But I think as important, it's not just the fact that, um, that you have the benefit of a different talent pool, but it's also exposure. What do people run into every day when they're walking down the street of San Francisco or Cupertino or, you know, or Palo Alto? They they just bump into their friends who are doing interesting things, uh, and and they're they're abreast of what is moving in technology far more rapidly and informally than perhaps one might get elsewhere. So you can bump into somebody at the coffee shop and find out something quite interesting. I think there's one other thing I would I would encourage you to consider. And, or at least uh, to reflect upon, um, which is the idea that maybe these new technologies can also help the industry with business models. For example, you know, right now, uh, a lot of the primary care physicians are moving to uh, value-based health models where it's not a fully capitated model, but they're sharing in savings. But that, the data requirements for that are, are much greater, right? You have, to, you have to really understand the census you're managing. You have to understand what their costs. You have to understand what goes into those costs. And you have to be able to manage data in a far more fluid fashion in order to get your arms around that. And I think that the opportunity to make that impactful uh, is far greater. One of the things that people, few, few people really understand is that uh, the entire U.S. billing system is based on IDC-10. I'm sorry, ICD-10, which is International Classification of Diseases formulated by the World Health Organization. Uh, 
And as an aside, my question was when uh, President Trump said he was withdrawing from the WHO, you know, what's going to happen to the database? Who's going to maintain it for the U.S. industry, healthcare industry? But um, I think that there are so many limitations on that model that impact the data that we're able to collect that uh, the, the technology companies are going to be able to offer us different forms of data, which will allow us to embrace different business models. Hopefully, those business models will, uh, will inure to the benefit of everybody in the industry, such that you know, patients ultimately get better care. Doctors have more time with patients, and, and doctors get paid for their time with patients. But uh, I don't, do, would you agree that that's another, another opportunity for the, help, for the data company, for the technology company? Indeed, indeed. And you touched upon a very interesting point here because when we end up speaking about the healthcare organizations, we tend to pivot a lot to the large organizations. And you kind of uh, already touched upon that fact that, hey, there are friendly neighborhood PCPs that you interact with. There are remote clinics, there are urgent care organizations, which are very small organizations. We do not have the the financial muscle to tap into a large technology trend that is playing out. Now, that's where when we think of healthcare, there's a huge spectrum in terms of large hospitals down to a a primary care physician who you would be interacting with, all of whom could possibly through the, uh, the way technology is evolving, be able to tap into this to create models for themselves and at, at, at a cost which is affordable for them. And that could end up impacting not only how much time that they are spending with patients, how they are leveraging into the wide pool of data that exists within the confines of the 50 states to be able to make smarter decisions about, hey, how are some of the uh, symptoms are uh, playing out, what kind of uh, reactions they are getting to certain uh, drugs being rolled out, even in terms of clinical trials through with, in which a lot of these organizations participate in and enable that ability will get significantly enhanced if we have a technology backbone that allows access, I would say, democratically to all constituents that serve patients at the end of the day. Well, your point's well taken because one of the aspects of that that people don't really recognize is the fact that there's data reciprocity, right? Those small clinics are contributing data to the broader pool and they can contribute then to a better understanding of clinical outcomes because the clinical outcomes are not uniform across the industry or across any population. So you have to be able to understand how to, um, how to temper that with the needs of the local community. Uh, you know, I have allergies today. And one of the things we're dealing with, for example, is high cedar count, uncharacteristically high cedar count and pollen count in the middle of January in Dallas. Um, okay, well, that, that's not a problem likely that's occurring in Milwaukee right now uh, or New York City. So we have to be able to temper the needs of the community and the, the people really with the tentacles are the smaller players who are distributed across our communities across the United States. And who have an opportunity to kind of feed that that data pool in a way that makes sense and allow far more granular understanding of what's going on in the in the, uh, in the environment. Um, so I think that you know that your point on uh, data reciprocity is is a very interesting one, and I think that the the little guys probably don't get enough credit for for their contributions there. Um, do you see anything? Just prognosticate. Let, let's imagine you get to be king for a day, and you get to say this is what's going to happen in five years, or because uh, I don't, I don't, I don't really see the implications of Cerner Oracle happening in less than five years in a, in a material way. It's just going to take too long for 
Oracle to fully integrate Cerner and uh, to the extent they're going to. Um, what do you see? Let's 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 give you the opportunity to prognosticate. What do you see happening in five years? What's the world you would paint? Uh, given what I have seen so far, and at least in the last two years of the COVID crisis, one thing definitely is going to happen is that uh, we are seeing going to see a lot of consolidation continue in the healthcare market as such because. Uh, when we compare the financial health of large hospital systems with the smaller ones, obviously large hospital systems were able to wade through the crisis much better because they had larger hedges compared to the smaller ones. And that's what created the situation where, for example, you are happen to be in a catchment area with high morbidity. You are dealing with uh, a lot more uh, kind of rejected claims than when you are operating out of a community which is largely healthier. I mean, that's the kind of scenario that is there. Now, what happens to these smaller healthcare setups, which are financially becoming insolvent? That's the question that a lot of organizations are asking. And uh, that's where I believe a lot of these will get become easy targets by, for larger organizations to acquire. And I'm not talking about targets or anybody eating them up, but bringing them under the ambit of more financial stability while uh, also operating under the standards of a larger organization which can control things. So in, in many ways, some of the larger health systems will become more influential, even though the trend that we were witnessing earlier was that uh, most um, industry experts would talk about that the hospital-based care system is now getting broken down into more remote and satellite locations, reaching closer to patients. In many ways, COVID has kind of put the brakes and turn the train in a different direction there. And hence, I believe in the short term, at least we see the large health systems having a stronger play in that, in both keeping alive the smaller healthcare setups and also working with each other and trying to define standards about how technology or data, et cetera, is going to interchange, what standards to define, so on and so forth. Beyond that, once the system stabilizes and we are at a stage where an organization start thinking about, hey, do we leverage technology? And to your point, you made a very interesting point that the Cerner, Oracle Cerner acquisition will not really start showing results maybe in less than five years. And in that time frame, I believe in five years, the time will come when that, uh, like the sinusoidal wave of trends that we have seen so far, we will come back to another trend wherein smaller organizations with better financial health will become more and more independent in trying to drive, as you were talking about reciprocity, or they were trying to talk about some of the uh, local initiatives that they would try to drive on the base of the context that they see within their community. So the community-based health systems, uh, context-based, uh, technology implementation, et cetera, will start becoming more prominent. But right now, it's more consolidation till the time we start seeing the, some of these players becoming more vocal and have the ability to drive the newer tenets of technology that we see getting applied in other industries. So there are three other things, three or four other things that I think are, are macro issues that I'm not sure how they're going to play out um, that, that we haven't spoken about. Number one, in 2026, the Medicare Trust is going to go bankrupt. We right now have about 10,000 people a day turning 55. Uh, Medicare, when it was first budgeted in 1965, when LBJ signed it into law, budgeted $10 billion 
And last year in 2021, CMS reported that the Medicare cost was $926 billion. At the same time, we have Kyra, which is the Competitive Health Insurance Reform Act, which subjects insurance companies for the first time ever, well, not for the first time since 1954, I think it was, um, to uh, federal antitrust laws. So the oligopolies that have formed in insurance are going to become a problem. Then the Biden administration has already come out and said we're concerned about concentration uh, in the with hospitals in the large in the seven largest uh, nationwide hospital systems. Um, so I think we have these macro issues that we got to figure out too. Which you know we've got to figure out a way to get a high quality healthcare distributed more rapidly uh, and more ubiquitously at an affordable cost. We have something called the Center for Impact Indices, which measures the distribution of healthcare services across the United States and the ability of people to obtain those services in the corresponding jurisdiction. One of the things we found, which was shocking, was over 200 acutely underserved markets of between 150,000 and 300,000 people per market. So the, the idea that we have healthcare ubiquity is just not, not a reality. At the same time, uh, as you mentioned correctly, I think earlier, we have concentrations of capital that have, you know, four MRIs at the corner of Elm and Main and zero, zero MRIs in the next 200 miles in either direction. And so that's another, another challenge we have. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that technology can help us. I'm hopeful that uh, the way that technology supports physicians getting the job done with their patients is helpful and uh, not too burdensome. Um, but I, I, I'd welcome your thoughts on those macro level issues. Absolutely. In fact, the very debate that is going on around the concentration of resources with large hospital systems looks, needs to be looked at from both perspectives. See, I don't really believe in uh, blacks and whites in terms, of, in terms of how we look at issues. Uh, it's areas are more gray in that nature. So when, when we talk about concentration with certain large health systems, we also talking about these large health systems actually keeping alive these catchment areas, which if they were running independently, would not be able to survive by themselves. Right. So right. The likes of tenets or HCA, et cetera, still continue to run a large chunk of these rural hospital systems, which would not exist in that scenario. So we need to appreciate that model for that. Now, in this whole partisan debate that ends up happening about concentration, uh, I think what we need to work towards is that as the model mature to a certain level, how are we enabling some of these catchment areas that you were talking about? Hey, whether it's budgetary limits are being reached and say, for example, how Medicare will be delivered, what will be the role of large corporations there? Can they take part responsibility? Are we looking at the controversy of a sunset of Medicare. Are we talking about that? Are these questions being debated or not? Uh, these are aspects that people will have a point of view, but not necessarily a workable solution at this point in time. But what we can definitely take heart from the fact is that some of these macro issues in terms of reach of healthcare, as well as how healthcare will be funded, it's, it's a debate that where large corporations will continue to play uh, continue to have a strong role to play in that regards. And technology companies, by the way, will create a lot of traction because since we ended up debating this whole CapEx versus OpEx question in terms of technology spend, and I know technology spend happens to be a small sliver of what healthcare organizations end up spending upon, but 
given that what we have seen with banking, given what we have seen with retail, which is not trickling into say something like uh, drug procurement or even um, uh, how drugs are getting sold in the market. That's one of the entry points wherein we have seen that work. How can technology become the backbone or the channel through which a good chunk of healthcare gets delivered? Can healthcare become more, more self-service rather than patient clinician interaction in a physical location? These are topics that have been discussed for decades, but right now we are at an inflection point wherein we can realistically think of these possibilities becoming real. And that's what my hope is on that in five years time, some of these use cases, which we think of as uh, being too futuristic will actually start happening. And we have seen that happen. Last 20 years, the kind of technology innovation we have seen in areas uh, such as gaming, metaverse, et cetera, do not seem to trickle down to the level of what individuals care about on a day-to-day -day basis. And healthcare has to be one of those areas where impact has to be created. Once that starts to happen, then only truly we can comfortably say that all the technology innovation of we, which we continue to be proud of in the last 20, 25 years is actually making a meaningful change beyond just wearing bands which uh, uh, give you how many steps you have taken during the day. Can they go beyond that? So is the future exciting or terrifying or both? Both, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, Abhishek, it's been so much fun talking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I would encourage everybody to, to read your research because it's really good stuff. And uh, we'll put all of the details down below in terms of where they can get your research because it's, it's very high quality, very analytical, and uh, very... Uh, quantitative and qualitative. So I, I really applaud the work you're doing there. Um, and again, we'll put it all down in the in the notes section. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, and we'll look forward to talking to you again sometime, probably in the near future when we can get a, a, an update on the snapshot. Thank you, Todd. Uh, thank you for giving me this platform to speak with you. And some of your insights were uh, really made me think about how to approach some of the questions that I deal with as a researcher. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.